0: This is Swordplay. Alex, actor Chris Pratt gave an acceptance speech at the MTV Awards in which he said God is real and he encouraged people to pray. Were you impressed with his comments? Well Nick, I think he
1: gave nine rules for living and I believe he left out rule number ten which was don't sign movie contracts. About movies that undermine your faith, <laughs> it makes you look like a hypocrite. Take that, Star Lord. <clears throat> I mean, Star Lord's gof- girlfriend is named Gamora. <laughs> he, he might as well have a long-lost brother
0: named Sodom. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So Jurassic World's coming out soon. I take it you're not going to be lining up to get your movie tickets for that one, or? I- I'll wait for it to, to be to rent. We'll rent it. This I gotta, is. I got to
1: see Megalodon. Come on.
0: This is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I'm Nick Perez, Preaching Minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in
1: St. Paul, Minnesota.
0: On this episode of Swordplay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1.
1: 2 Thessalonians. Nick, I think we have uh, a lot of good questions to start out with as far as who wrote the book and who Paul is talking about. But really... um, to handle this, we should jump into the lightning round. Lightning
0: round, all right, here
1: we go. <clears throat> get get your stopwatch ready, kids. On your marks, get set, go. All right, uh, first off, who is Paul? Uh, Paul's an apostle of Christ Jesus, uh, converted on the road to Damascus. He is the author of this letter. Paul, who, uh, Nick, who is Sylvanus? A.k.a. He was, Silas.
0: Yeah, he was a leader in the Jerusalem church. He was a traveling companion of Paul. Later, it seems he became the scribe or secretary for the Apostle Peter. You can see 1 Peter 5 verse 12 for more on that. Who is Timothy?
1: Uh, Timothy is a young man, has a Jewish mother, a Greek father, converted likely by the Apostle Paul himself, calls him a true child in the faith. You can read about him in the book of Acts, traveling companion with Paul on his missionary journeys. Nick, why is this letter, uh, why was it written in the first place? What's the occasion?
0: Well, it seems like the Thessalonians were undergoing persecution and affliction. The population in Thessalonica just wasn't taking very kindly to the gospel. They'd actually forced Paul out. And you can read more about that in what? Acts chapter seventeen, I believe. Would the Thessalonians have a specific group in mind for their day for that was leading the charge for that persecution? Alex. Absolutely. You mentioned Acts
1: chapter 17, and you have persecution coming at them from day one by the unbelieving Jews and also the Roman authorities whom they're able to manipulate in order to afflict them. And this is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. That was the lightning round. All
0: right. (laughs) Hey, uh, so that gives you a pretty good setup. Oh, diligent listener, if you haven't already, we should have mentioned it earlier, stop. The playback, pause it, come back in a few minutes after you read the chapter in its entirety. It's 12 verses, so it shouldn't take you very long. Read the whole uh, epistle of Second Thessalonians to get a pretty good grasp of what's going on there. But uh, yeah, I think we've pretty well set things up, Alex. There you go. Well, Nick, let's jump into some deeper questions here.
1: All right. um, first of all, where is Thessalonica? Because... When you read all these cities in the book of Acts, I can't keep my head around. i got to go back to the back of my Bible, look at
0: the maps. What do we know about Thessalonica? Well, that's a good place to start is the map section in your Bible in the back. Um, Modern-day Thessalonica, which is called Thessaloniki, is in Greece. It's a place of trade, transportation. It's the second-largest city in Greece. It's the capital of Macedonia, and... It's also the site of the International DJ Championships. So if you're good with the turntables, that's the place to be. Uh, But Thessalonica of the past was not as historically significant as some of the other cities of its time, like, say, Rome, for example. Uh, In fact, Paul... When he wrote to the Thessalonians, the city was relatively new. They had the famous road via Ignatia, which ran through the city. It was founded by Cassander. He named it after his wife, who was a sister of Alexander the Great. And so when Paul comes on the scene with the gospel in the first century, while it was, relatively speaking, a new city, there was a significant population of Jews and pagans, idol worshippers. And so he begins with his own people, the Jewish people, shows them that Jesus was and is the Christ. And you can again read about this in Acts chapter 17. But um, they didn't, the the Jewish population didn't really like his message. So Paul ended up going to the Greeks, to those who worshiped idols. And they responded very positively to the gospel. And after a couple months of work there, Paul is eventually driven out from Thessalonica but um he does write 1st Thessalonians and then the sequel 2nd Thessalonians after that and he, you can you can hear in the tone he had a very deep affection for these folks um he loved them and loved the work that he did there so uh, do you have anything else to add to that Alex about Thessalonica
1: no i just think if you're looking at a map you can find it easy enough but if you're not and you happen to remember where Israel is and the promised land well to the west you have the coast of the Mediterranean and you go north on that coast and that wraps around modern day Turkey which was Asia Minor back then and then on the coast of Turkey you have the Aegean Sea and it's across the Aegean Sea that you run into Macedonia and south of that is Corinth. And that's where Thessaloniki is, right? In that Macedonia area in Achaia? Yep, yep. Okay, and then across from that land is Italy, where you run into Rome. So definitely some uh, traveling by land and sea to get there for the uh, Apostle Paul.
0: Yeah, and so that's um, 1st century Thessalonica, the Thessalonians there, the church there, that's to whom Paul wrote this brief little epistle with his traveling companions, Silas or Silvanus and Timothy. And so once you get in here, he talks about the persecution, the afflictions that they're enduring, but also you get to verse 5, and he talks about the evidence of the righteous judgment of God um, Alex, it seems like he's talking about the persecution, the suffering, as evidence of God's righteous judgment. Why, why is their suffering an example of, or an evidence of, proof of, God's righteous judgment?
1: That's a good question, Nick. I think there's a couple of different ways uh, I look at it anyway. First, you could consider it um, the righteous judgment which God will bring in wrath against those who are doing the persecuting. And that'll be definitely a part of this thought as we go through the rest of the verses. But it could also be uh, God's righteous judgment of justifying those who would keep their faith in him. So they've been justified through Christ Jesus. They've given their faith, their their fealty, their loyalty to him. And they're going to keep it. They're going to keep their loyalty with him even if it means persecution uh even persecution that results in death and i think that's part of the righteous judgment going on here god has judged righteously to re- to to gift salvation to those who just stay loyal to him not sinless perfection but loyal so i think there's maybe two parts of the righteous judgment going on here but i don't know what do you think nick
0: no i think that's i think that's accurate um and the only thing i would uh just note here is that whether it's God rewarding Christians or, as we're going to talk about in a moment, punishing the wicked for their wickedness, his judgment is always just. God's judgment is always just. It's always right. And I know some people get kind of hung up, especially on the punishment part of this, but God's right and God's just in his uh, judgment. Um, It's just a fascinating thing to consider that their perseverance, their faith, that's kind of proving them as worthy. Um, God is rightly counting them as worthy of his kingdom. It's just a fascinating concept. Um, so, and, and they're supposed to view it that way, as a refining, a refining process of their faith, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And since we're talking about the worthiness aspect here, um, how are these Christians worthy of God's kingdom? there in verse 5. Yeah, he says, so that you
1: will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. Um, really, one verse stood out to me, and that is Acts chapter 14, verse 22, when uh, Christians are suffering, and Paul says as an encouragement to them, uh, through trials, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Um, I think that it just... Again, underlying this idea that you have to persevere with whatever is going on that you don't have to completely understand what's going on, you just have to know that your trust and faith is in Christ and that God will pay back those who have done evil to you he will execute vengeance on your behalf but it's going to be in his way and in his timing because he does desire all people to come to repentance and to a knowledge of the truth so I would say these Christians are worthy of God's kingdom through their persevering faith. Uh, And I don't mean by they're going to be sinless, but I mean they're going to hang in there no matter how hard it gets. They're going to continue to pledge loyalty to Christ. What do you think, Nick?
0: Yeah, you mentioned uh, the verse in Acts 14. uh, One that came to my mind was in Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, where the same word is used Um, when the apostles were they were persecuted they were uh, beaten for their faith and when they are charged not to speak anymore in the name of jesus they actually leave the presence of the council verse 41 says rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name so uh, just uh, a, a connection there where the disciples were deemed worthy to suffer for Christ's name, and now here are these Christians in Thessalonica who themselves are suffering, and, and it's it's as if their suffering um, is what is causing them to be made worthy. Their worthiness is rooted in God's justice to reward them for their suffering. They've as you mentioned a few moments ago they've shown themselves to be in solidarity with the rule and reign of Christ loyalty it's not sinless perfection but it's um they're they're aligning themselves with uh with God and his rule and reign in their life so and they get um, the the blessing for that blessed jesus
1: said blessed are those who uh, persecute you and revile you, say all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account for they did the same thing through the prophets who were before you. Yours is the kingdom of God, he says over and over. I think that's the idea here is That solidarity you mentioned. And yet, Nick, this might spill over into what we've talked about in previous podcasts concerning the difference between the gift of salvation and the reward which we earn on top of the gift based on what we do in our uh, lives with that faith we've been given. And so this might connect us to the idea of suffering and enduring in that suffering to also receive the reward. Now, do all Christians, because if, if we don't separate this, if we say this is about salvation here, does that mean all Christians have to suffer in order to be considered worthy of the kingdom of God? if that means salvation, or are we separating salvation from the reward?
0: You know, it was, in their time, it was was considered the norm. This was the normal Christian experience, was to undergo suffering um, in some form uh, for their faith. Now, it's true that all people endure suffering in one form or fashion, regardless of whether they have faith or not, but the Christian perspective has always been that whatever suffering that you endure, that you go through is intended to draw you closer and closer to God, not push us away. And so, uh, which is, that's kind of the tragedy for, um, well, at least in the West, when it comes to suffering is it tends to push people away from God. Um, and yet that's not the way it was. That's none of the Christians looked at it that way. They, they looked at suffering as, um, as a necessity, as essential, it was a way of identifying with Christ. Peter writes about this in uh, First Peter, quite a bit about how since Christ suffered, we suffer also. He suffered in the flesh, and we suffer also, and that helps us cease from sin. There's all kinds of best, uh, benefits and blessings that come from suffering for Christ, and um, and so I think do all Christians have to suffer um yeah in one form or fashion that's that's how we're refined that's how we're perfected it's how we our faith is proven genuine um all these things are are biblical concepts that are related to suffering does that make sense Absolutely I think sometimes it's easy to forget that we're not
1: in heaven yet and every trial and suffering and hurt and sadness that comes our way is just another barrier that we break through as we march forward to heaven and so we don't stop at that wall and then say well i guess god gave up on me or so i'll give up on god no you persevere you endure because through many trials and tribulations we must enter the kingdom of god well nick jesus talks about a relief coming to the persecuted christians at thessalonica he talks about jesus will return he'll give them relief what does that mean does that mean that they're to expect that relief to happen in their lifetime um or would it still be encouraging for them to have that relief even after death and then that brings the question do you need relief after death or
0: in the resurrection yeah and so this uh this is coming from verses six and seven about God repaying those who afflict you. Uh, he'll repay with affliction. He'll grant relief to you when Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. That <clears throat> that sounds to me like end of time speech. <clears throat> Excuse me, it sounds like eternal judgment speech that Jesus being revealed from heaven that's that's the end of time. And so I'm going to take the angle on this that it is talking about um, day of judgment and and that there will be judgment that is meted out on the bad guys, and it's going to come from christ it 's going to come from God, and that repayment is going to be just um, and as far as after death needing relief uh, there's one image, one picture in the book of Revelation chapter six verses nine ten and eleven where you do have these saints who have been martyred who are under the altar of God crying out how long how long until you bring uh, retribution how long until you uh, take care of the bad guys God and God essentially says well it's coming all right and so um there's uh there's you know we got to wait for the full number of your brothers and all that so yeah um Even, it seems, even after uh, death, there's still a desire for relief and for God to execute his justice. Do you have a a different take on this, Alex? Yeah, I kind of leaned more towards the uh,
1: preterist perspective. That is, the idea that this stuff could have very well happened already in the past. It would be the future of the Thessalonians' day but it would be the past for us today. And the reason I come to that conclusion is I I think about the language that Jesus uses in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where he is foretelling the destruction of Jerusalem, and part of that foretelling is him coming back in the clouds, and that coming in the cloud language always evokes language of Yahweh and his angelic entourage coming to earth for the purpose of judgment in the Old Testament. So, when I see Jesus being revealed with His mighty angels, I know that that can mean the end of time. Of course, it could absolutely, but I think it was also the same exact language used to talk about a temporal judgment or a destruction coming upon uh, a a city, a people group, and specifically, I guess in this context, it would be the persecutors of the Thessalonians. So it's one of those things where okay you're going to get relief is it encouraging to know that that relief is is on its way uh as much as it is to know that that relief will come in a couple thousand years um I don't know I could go I could go either way here here's the thing you mentioned revelation chapter 6 and how the souls under the altar in heaven right you would think they'd be happy cuz they're in heaven they're in God's presence they're not. Yeah. They're they're still upset. They want vengeance. They said, how long, Lord, until you avenge us? And the Lord says, you, be patient a little while longer. Here's your new clothes, your white robes, and we just need to wait until the, the number of your fellow brethren uh, are killed. In other words, we're waiting for more martyrs, which could go into um, some of our thoughts later in the podcast about the filling up of uh, the cup of wrath against God's enemies. But I think also about this idea of vengeance still being desired after death. When I think about uh, Abel in the book of Genesis, when God is confronting Cain about killing his brother, he says that your brother Abel, that his blood is crying out to me from the ground, from the earth. And uh, could that be poetic? Absolutely. However, um, since Jude quotes the book of Enoch, I'm going to feel free to quote the book of Enoch as well. In the book of First Enoch, mm-hmm. chapter 22, verse 7, it talks about uh, the departed spirit of Abel and how he is crying out for God to execute judgment on the seed of the serpent. Isn't that interesting? Mm. So departed souls of the righteous are still crying out after death for judgment uh, and defeat of the serpent's seed line; those who would align themselves with Satan, and the evil and harm that they cause upon the people of God on Earth. So, I guess I would say that uh, right now I'm I'm okay with either scenario. I still know Jesus is coming back for the resurrection for the final day of judgment, even if this passage happens to be talking about the judgment coming in a temporal sense and an earthly sense upon the persecutors of the Church at Thessalonia.
0: Yeah, um, if he comes in judgment in time, uh, well and good, and I think probably historically we can look back and the city of Thessalonica has been destroyed, rebuilt, destroyed, rebuilt um, several times just over time, and so with God coming in judgment upon that city or upon a group of people in that city, he talks about the synagogue of Satan over in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. So, yeah, no problem with that. But if he doesn't, there's still, they still have to deal with that final coming. Absolutely. Know, when it's all said and done, when it's all over. And so, with that in mind, verse 8, he's going to come in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Alex, How we know what Paul writes in Romans 1, uh, verses 18 through 20, about how the invisible attributes of God have been known forever. And so people are without excuse. Right. How can Paul here say that there are some who don't know God? You know, that's a good question. Paul says everybody
1: knows God, Romans 1, but here he says people are going to be punished severely. not knowing God so a couple of ideas here maybe there's a different level to which you know like you can know about the existence of God or a higher power through creation Mm -hmm. but that general knowledge doesn't necessarily translate it might point you towards but it doesn't mean the same thing as covenantal knowledge as God's people knowing him in covenant relationship so that's one way. It could, in other words, it could be another way of describing those who do know God, but they suppress that truth and unrighteousness. In other words, um, Paul's not talking about the general knowledge of those who know God, but those who suppress that knowledge and unrighteousness. They have not come to know God uh, in relationship through covenant. I guess that's that's where I would be on that. What do you think?
0: That makes sense, um, especially that, you know, um, Jay Buzhuzhevsky written a book called What We Can't Not Know. Buzhuzhevsky what? <laughs> What'd yeah. you call me? <laughs> yeah. Jay Buzhuzhevsky, uh, professor of uh, philosophy and government at the University of Texas, What We Can't Not Know. And um, he talks about how like, there's, there's written in our heart this knowledge that is inescapable. But the, the best that man in rebellion can do is just what you're talking about and what Paul talks about in Romans 1, is you can suppress it. You can wall it off. And the verse that came to my mind regarding this was uh, something Jesus says in John 8, verses 54 and 55, where he says, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. So they knew something about God. That's why they claimed he is our God. Now, notice what Jesus says, verse 55. He says, but you have not known him. <laughs> uh. And so um uh he goes on and says, I know him. If I were to say that I did not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. And so I, I think this may be what – it could be what Paul is tapping into here with this knowledge of God that comes by way of obedience. Now, of course, you – may wonder well but he says those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel so you already have obedience mentioned there it's kind of redundant well perhaps but it could just be I mean Paul is a Hebrew of Hebrews and he was well versed in Hebrew parallelism and that could be what he's doing here with um you they don't know and they don't obey and it's just a parallel way of talking about the same thing they don't know him through obedience they and listen, when Jesus says that he's talking to Jewish people who have the law, who have the covenant, who have all the stuff, they didn't really know him. They didn't obey God um, like Christ is, who's presented as the 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 um the true Israelite in John's gospel, who knows God and knows him through obedience. And so what's Paul saying then? He's saying that everyone, Jew and Gentile, all all ethnicities, all ethnic groups, they're in view here as um, neither knowing God nor obeying God. I know some maybe try to shake this down into two different things. Those who don't know God, that would be the Gentiles, and those who do not obey the gospel, that would be the Jewish. It could be that, but I think it could also be just His way through Hebrew parallelism of saying everyone, and it's just a, a parallel statement. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I I think what you're saying makes sense. That could definitely be the
1: case. And um, either one fits. The, what we know about what happened in the church at Thessalonica from the book of Acts. Because you have in Acts chapter 17, as we mentioned earlier, Jewish persecution upon those who chose to believe in Christ, both the, the Jewish believer and the Gentile believer, and how did the Jews bring about persecution? They would use and manipulate the Roman authorities to uh, bring physical harm to the, uh, to the people who are now claiming Christ, Uh, Jesus as the Christ. And so you you could go either way. Those who don't know God, that would be the Roman authorities that the Jews are using to afflict the Christians. And then those who don't obey the gospel, those would be the ones who Paul said, you've counted yourself unworthy. I'm going to the Gentiles. They're the Jews who don't believe in Jesus as the Christ. Or it could be a parallelism, like you were saying, where Those who don't know God, that is, and don't obey the gospel, are the same group of unbelieving Jews.
0: Those all fit to me, so I'm fine with either one. Well, um, here's an interesting one. Okay, so he's saying this is stuff that is going to happen, it's yet future. That, um, verse 9, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints. So, why is it that God is waiting to punish those who do not know him and don't obey the gospel? What are, what are the divine motivations for this delayed punishment?
1: Uh, well, Nick, I think as we mentioned before, the motivation in revelation six was that God's waiting for more of his people to be persecuted. He's waiting for more martyrs. And that sounds shocking at first, but why would God wait for more martyrs? Doesn't he want to stop the persecution as soon as possible? What do you think?
0: I think that's a very, um, very human way of looking at persecution (laughs) Um, we want it to be stopped we want it to uh, be ended and i think sometimes we want we we conflate those things with god's will those desires that we have we conflate with god's will well if i want it surely he wants it not necessarily (laughs) sure god's will he says in isaiah 55 my ways are not your ways my thoughts are not your thoughts as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways. So, when it comes to understanding the divine mind, especially surrounding something as, as intense as persecution and martyrdom, um, while we may want it to stop, God is ultimately up to something bigger that we, we, we typically miss and we don't see it, especially revolving around it's mentioned here in verse 10 about the glorification. When he's glorified in his... God is God is glorified, and we may not understand how, but he's glorified somehow, some way, through the filling up um, of the full number of the martyrs. Uh, as you mentioned there, Revelation 6, verse 11, they were told, uh, they were each given a white robe, told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete or full, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And as I think about this, one of the one other passage that comes to mind is 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, where Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If you haven't heard what we've said about that, it's on the website, uh, because we've podcasted 2 Peter. But here's another divine motivation, if you will. Perhaps it's that in the delayed punishment, there are those who would be punished, who repent and flee from the wrath that's to come. Uh, So... There's there's so many things that sometimes we're not privy to, we're not given insight into. The secret things belong to the Lord, but He's revealed to us what we can keep, and it's good for us. And so, um, we we endure and we persevere, and our faith is refined, even though we may not understand all the divine motivations as to um, the delay uh, the delayed punishment. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And um, I want to I would add
1: two more things to that. Uh, One has to do with God's justice, and the other one has to do with God's promises. So the first note about justice, I'm thinking of Genesis chapter 15, verse 16, where God is telling Abraham all of the land in which he is walked upon, it will be his. He's going to receive the land of the Canaanites. However, it's not going to be right now. It's not going to be in his lifetime. It's going to be 400 years from then. And that is because the sin of the Amorites was not yet full. In other words, God's justice demanded that his wrath be poured out upon them once their cup is full and no sooner. So in other words, if God's going to execute judgment, every now and then it almost seems like he uh, He sends like an angelic assassin to take someone out. I'm thinking of the book of Acts where Herod is uh, struck down by an angel for... Uh, is taking credit for people saying that he's he's the voice of a god. He's a god. The voice
0: of a god and not <laughs> yeah, a man, yeah. yeah.
1: And then an angel kills him. Yeah. So you have that, but I think when you have a more wider spread persecution that um, God's not going to go Assassin's Creed and just take out any individual who's hurting <laughs> you, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so, And so he's going to bring judgment upon a whole city, upon a whole empire, upon a whole group of people. So when he does that he wants to make sure it's just and that it's deserved and that it's at the measure that he sees fit for that wrath to come upon him because when it comes upon him it's going to be big it's going to be traumatic it's going to be a disaster it's going to be horrifying so that's one aspect about god's justice and why they might have to wait the other aspect about the promise is god said Your people are going to multiply to Abraham, that is, back in Genesis. Your people are going to multiply like the sands of the sea, like the stars of the sky. And that's going to take time. And so he uses that time while the wrath builds up against his enemies to also build up the strength and numbers of his own people while they wait patiently for the day of their uh, redemption, if you will. So those are a couple more thoughts I wanted to throw in there. Now, Nick, um, this day of destruction, verse 9 says that they will suffer suffer the penalty of eternal destruction. Is this hell? Is this the everlasting place of torment and fire described in other
0: places in the Bible? Is this the lake of fire? What do you think, Nick? Well, um, for my master's degree i wrote a, a thesis on the description of the final fate of the wicked it's a, essentially a book about hell i pulled that out for this particular question <laughs> um <clears throat> i didn't know 10 pages could sound so heavy <laughs> yeah i i was very very concise um <laughs> the uh the conclusion i i reached with this particular passage was that yes this is this is talking about hell that that eternal punishment is um paul's way here of talking about what is discussed elsewhere in not only his writings but also in the johannine literature like revelation Um, that's where i fall with this is that eternal destruction um is hell but there's another way of looking at it isn't there alex yeah i guess i'll take the the other side of this debate
1: and um if you're going to go one of two ways, you know, the trajectory towards the end of the world and heaven and hell to follow, or the trajectory of language used for temporal judgment, um, the temporal judgment side does have an argument to make about destruction, eternal destruction, describing the punishment that can come upon people now on earth today. So in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, it talks about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Uh, specifically calls it destruction Um, in Jude chapter 1 verse 7 the same example is given about Sodom and Gomorrah and their destruction in which Jude calls them undergoing the example of eternal fire so you have destruction and eternal fire used as descriptors for the judgment which came upon Sodom and Gomorrah that was an earthly judgment in which their physical cities were destroyed by God so Does eternal destruction mean hell? It can. Um, Can it also mean judgment upon earthly cities, peoples, empires, what have you? I think there's a case to be made. I think that's on the table still. That's where I'm at right now, Nick. What do you think?
0: Yeah, that, uh, and and all I want to add to this is um, to talk about that most commentators who talk about, who write about this eternal destruction. Most of them say that this is not the annihilation of the wicked. Um, I'm not saying that's what you're saying. Uh, I hear what you're saying about the temporal judgment. Um, I just want to, um, for our listeners, say that when it comes to destruction, the the idea behind this is like that of um, a ship which has been beaten and battered and ruined it may even be at the bottom of the ocean like the titanic and it's still it's still the form of a ship but it's um it's ruined and it's it's never going to be seaworthy again and that's that's the word that's used here by Paul to describe this destruction and it's never ending it's like you're always going to be the titanic at the bottom of the sea ever decomposing, but never coming to a full disintegration. Uh, what's the original language there, Nick? Do you remember?
1: Um, the word? For destruction, yeah. Olethros. Olethros, okay. Just wanted to check. I wasn't sure if it was Pthora. Remember when we talked about Pthora in the um, book of Second Peter? But, yeah, different word. Yeah. But just the idea of this... Uh, this corruption, this breakdown, uh, it's a good description of hell. It's a good description of what what happens to those who are uh, sent away from the presence of God at the return of Jesus. and in fact, uh, that's the next thought here as he says, they are going to be sent away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now, does being removed from the presence of the Lord does that assume does that necessarily infer that they once were? In his presence. What do
0: you think, Nick? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I think of uh, in in the Psalms, you know, where can I go from your presence? If I, uh, if I flee to Sheol, you're there. If I go to the ends of the earth, you're there. Um, so in, in one sense, um, God is omnipresent, and uh, we, we can't get away from from his presence. And yet, in a very real sense, we' we're, we're gonna miss out if if through disobedience and rebellion we persist in that, we will miss out on the greater experience of um, being in the presence of God, and so I think that's what paul is is going for here when he says that they'll be um they'll suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord that there's gonna come this this time this final period where and time isn't even the proper way of talking about it since it's eternity um but there's going to come this state this experience where all that's going to be left is for God to turn away from them um so i think i think yeah that's that's what's what's going for what paul is going for here with being shut away put away from the presence of god as they were especially in just kind of that generic sense of the omnipresence of god and now even that's going to be taken away from them. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, you could even summarize that in the uh, <coughs> Sermon on the Mount where it says the Lord causes the sun and the rain to come upon the righteous and the wicked. So there is, a, there is an extent to which God's goodness and presence can be seen and enjoyed for everyone on the entire earth. Uh, again, sticking with this trajectory, if we're going to say there's two ways to go about this, how do we consistently interpret each way? Well, right. if you're going to say that um, being cast away from the presence of the Lord is not the end of the world or the return of Christ at the resurrection, um, the way you would interpret that then is you would think, okay, who's enemy number one of the church in Thessalonica? Who's persecuting them? Well, from the book of Acts, it's the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, that is. And they're using the Romans to as their hammer in their hands to do that persecution So the idea is um, maybe the Jews, since they're unbelieving, maybe they would consider certain Christian teachings to be blasphemous, like the idea of the temple being now Jesus and his body and his body of believers as opposed to the brick and mortar, uh, if you will, located in Jerusalem. And so certain ideas like that I think would not be made clear as to who's right because God's presence in the Old Testament is clearly said to be in Jerusalem, to be in his temple. He fills his temple. He's with his people there. That's his space. Uh, Well, in AD 70, God will leave that space and that temple will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon the other as Jesus predicted and Jerusalem will be burned to the ground. Uh, That'll take three and a half years. But in 8070, it'll be finished. And I wonder, I wonder if this could be specifically aimed towards those unbelieving Jews and the vindication that God is going to give to his Christians, showing the unbelieving Jews that his presence is not with them in their temple or in their city, but is in the new Jerusalem, the church, the heavenly Zion, the body of Christ. Therefore, the destruction of the Jews in Jerusalem in 8070 could be spoken of as the penalty in which they are being cast away from the presence of the Lord. The city is going to be put under that same kind of fire of eternal destruction that Sodom and Gomorrah was put under. And they will not be able to experience the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his people because his people are those who put their faith in Jesus. So that's that's the train of thought you could go on that trajectory, Nick. Any thoughts? Well, and-
0: no and the only thing i would add would be that um, most scholars date the book of second thessalonians first and second thessalonians probably in like 50 and then 51 probably written over um, or uh, there's a span of about 18 months or a year and a half that separate the writing of first thessalonians from second thessalonians so not only is this some of the oldest literature that we have in the new testament But it's also, um, just as you're saying, tracking in line with this destruction of... We're we're two decades before Jerusalem is destroyed in 70 AD. So um, that that certainly lines up there. Um, I want to connect a couple dots here. Verse 10... Paul talks about um, when Christ comes and he's glorified in his saints, but he also talks about it in verse 12 about having the name of Jesus glorified in them. So Alex, what's all this glorification about Christ about is is Christ's glorification in his saints? Is that a is that a a one-time event or is that an ongoing thing? Is it a past event? Is it a future event? Break it down for us.
1: Nick, I think this should be considered our tough text of the tough day. Tough text. <laughs> yeah. Is Christ's glorification in his saints a single moment in time? Has it happened multiple times? Has it already happened? Is it yet to happen? This is a hard one. Um, a lot of this... Nick, I think what we're struggling with in second Thessalonians chapter one, and we'll continue to struggle with it in chapter two is the idea of eschatology, eschatology, meaning the study of the end times. Mm-hmm. And depending on you one's particular eschatology, you're going to follow different tracks of interpretation for second Thessalonians. I think second Thessalonians has a lot in common with the book of revelation in that sense. And, um, I don't know. Maybe that's why we don't preach from it very often. Who wants to? Who wants to throw out their yeah. idea on who the man of lawlessness is? But I guess we'll do that next week. Yeah. But uh, is Christ's glorification singular, circular, past, future? I'm going to say all of the above, and maybe that's a, a cop out. But here's the thing: to the Thessalonians, I think they did have a specific day in mind, a specific day. In which they, as God's people, would be vindicated even though they have been kicked out of this synagogue. That they would be vindicated even though they uh, experienced persecution uh, from those who say the true temple is in Jerusalem. And all kinds of bad things were happening to these believers. They were waiting for God to make clear who his people are, who his Messiah is. And I think that that is the day that they have in mind. That's the day in which people will glorify. The saints will uh, magnify and glorify that day. They will marvel when God completely wipes Jerusalem and the temple off the face of the planet. I think that that day is something they're looking forward to because it shows them that they have not misplaced their faith and that they have not suffered and persevered for nothing, that they truly have Uh, believed in in the Messiah, and they truly are the people of God and the temple of God. So I think that's the day they're looking forward to. Um, But just a few verses later, it's going to be talking about how the name of Jesus is going to be glorified in them. And he connects that back to good deeds. So it can be multiple things. It can be different uh, fulfillments of that. Christ's name is not just glorified. When he vindicates his saints, it's glorified. When his saints live out, his um, live out as as his representatives on earth. So, is that going to also be a day of glorification when he comes back and the resurrection happens? Absolutely, that will too be a day of vindication. That's why I would say it's singular and circular, past and future. What do you think?
0: I don't disagree with that. Um, the only thing I would. Um build upon is, um, since you approached it from the th- that day being um, destruction of Jerusalem, um, I'll, you mentioned the resurrection, I'll just build on that, and that is, um, yeah, there is, there is coming this final day where the veil, as it were, of reality is going to be pulled back, and the Lord is going to step forward in all of his realized glory. And in the same way, we're going to be glorified with him as well uh, on that day, that final day, um, since I've been approaching (laughs) the the eschatological question that way throughout this chapter. So, yeah, it anticipates that final, future, full glorification. And yet, even now, I mean, that's part of verse 12 is the, the purpose for this book, and we'll talk about it in a moment, is that Christ would be glorified in these Christians in Thessalonica just like he's that's always the goal is that Christ would be glorified in his saints and that's a real thing that's a present thing so uh, yeah I have no no problem with with all of the above right Um, when it comes to this glorification and I guess the question then that's related to this is how how does how is Christ glorified in these Christians even as he's how is he glorified today well, Nick, I would definitely say he's glorified through their love,
1: which he uh, already commended them for at the beginning of the chapter. He They're glorified when they persevere. People wonder when they see a, a believer today and then, uh, how are you able to still withstand all of these trials? When we see people handle trials in a way that seems um, out of the ordinary for us, uh, it catches their attention. It provides an open door for the gospel to be spread. I think The name is glorified in their good works, in our good works done in this life in preparation for the life to come. Um, In those good works, though, Nick, all of those things, he says in his prayer at the end that, again, God would count them worthy, that he would fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So, okay, Jesus will be glorified in them, but part of that is the fulfilling of their good uh, desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. I'm curious, Nick, what do you think about this work of faith with power?
0: Is this with
1: power miraculous?
0: It could be. I mean, we're talking about first century Christians um, who the manifestation and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit was uh, a little different than it is today. And there are divine reasons for that, but um, it certainly could be uh, this work of faith by his power is how my English Standard Version reads. Um, does it have to be exclusively miraculous? I don't think so. I think God can still um, fulfill every work of faith by his power in us today. Um, it, it may look different, and yet it's still just as real. And um, and so I think while well, in the first century context it could be related to like spiritual gifts and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, what gets carried across the bridge today is we are still spiritually gifted, but not necessarily in a miraculous way. Uh, does that make sense? Anything to add to that? Could it still be supernatural, Nick? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it would be beyond our natural abilities. Okay. Maybe that's the... The thing
1: that sometimes I forget is that you may not have uh, the handkerchief that you touch, which now heals anybody instantly of all their ailments, like Peter could do in the book of Acts. But does that mean the supernatural power behind those miracles are absent today? I don't think so. I think right. I think the supernatural powers are still in place. They're just not being exercised in the same manner as they were in the first century. And I think there are specific reasons for that and if you if, if you compare the the Thessalonians with the Corinth the Corinthians um they were all about the miraculous gifts but you know what they lacked love, love. that's right yep. they lacked love now the Thessalonians uh they don't lack love they excel and grow in love and so they're prime to properly use their soup the to to cooperate with the supernatural power that god puts in place through his providence and his um his divine, his beings, his, his, our servants, the angels in the heavenly realms, Hebrews chapter one. So, um, Nick, we're wrapping up this episode here. Yep. Y-
0: your take on the purpose of the letter.
1: Why, why did Paul write this letter?
0: I see verses 11 and 12 as the purpose statement of the book. And there's a threefold purpose here. Um, one, God is making them worthy. Um, that's that's what Paul is praying for. And so the purpose is wrapped up in this prayer. All right, So that God would make them worthy of his calling. Second, that God would fulfill his good purposes in them. Um, that's why he talks about resolve, uh, fulfill every resolve for good, every work of faith by his powers we talked about. And then the third is that the name of Jesus would be glorified in them. Um, and all this gets accomplished according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ so uh, that's that's how I see the the purpose of this book I've, I view verses eleven and twelve as a purpose statement um, what say you
1: Nick I think the purpose of the epistle I'm going to take a more uh, collective approach from from everything we've talked about in the in the first chapter and I think the purpose is to remind the Christians at Thessalonica that God will avenge them leave room for God's wrath leave room for God's vengeance don't avenge yourselves is what Paul says in Romans 12 so they needed to be reminded of God's vengeance on their behalf so that they can stay focused on the work of the church and the spreading of the gospel and the apostolic example that's been set for them you know Nick uh these Christians are hurting they have been physically hurt they've been emotionally uh attacked, verbally attacked. Um, Hurt can very often lead to anger. And anger brings about new temptations to sin. And it can cloud your mind so that you're not thinking clearly. It can affect the way that you live. We're going to have people um, needing correction on that later on in the book. So here's the thing. God takes those distractions says, I'll take care of it. I'll make sure justice is done. You stay focused on your mission. You have a job to do. Christ's name will be glorified in you. You do those good works. You work hard. You remember the example set for you by the apostles. I think
0: that's the purpose. And that's going to do it, I think, for today's episode. Um, We do want to invite you, oh diligent listener, to go on to iTunes in the... um, iTunes store, go into Google Play. You can subscribe to the podcast through those uh, two avenues and download all the episodes to your particular device and listen whenever whenever you want. Yes, and please write a review or rate us if you
1: think the podcast has been helpful to you. This will help other people find the podcast as well. And if you have questions, please send those questions to podcast at gmail.com and looks like next week in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 we will get into the man of lawlessness
0: Ooh, big one
1: that'll be easy right oh yeah we'll, we'll fly right through it <laughs> well Nick any other announcements
0: not at this time thanks for listening
1: we'll see you next time on another episode of swordplay